Well, good morning, fellowship. <laughs> this is quite the treat, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but just by a show of hands, how many of you have power in your homes? Yeah. I think actually there's fewer people in this service than in the first service that were without. But uh, So I'm, I'm really impressed that you guys are committed to come leave your homes with power and come here to be together, right? Um, absolutely great. Well, this morning, our call to worship comes from Psalm chapter 36. So I'm going to invite you to stand and hear these words. And we are using hymnals this morning. So if you got one on your way in, great. If not, start looking around for some in your chairs. Um, I'm going to give you the hymn number right now so you can have it prepped. It's number 487. And it's when morning gilds the skies. And then we'll, we'll hear Psalm chapter 36, and then we'll sing together hymn number 487. Hear these words from Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Let's sing together when morning gilds the skies. Father, 
Our groans join the groans of a broken creation. So much has gone awry in our sinful and broken world. Our souls cry out to you, Lord, have mercy. We lament the wars that wreak havoc on nations. We lament the violence that wreaks havoc on innocent victims. We lament the hostility that wreaks havoc on our relationships. We lament the illnesses and conditions that wreak havoc on our minds and our bodies. We lament the devastation and the lack of stewardship that wreaks havoc on creation. Our souls cry out to you, Christ, have mercy. We lament, we mourn, we confess the sin that continues to wreak havoc on our souls. The petty envies and jealousies that plague us. The lust that blinds us to the goodness and value in one another and ourselves. The vainglory that seeks attention in all the wrong ways. The greed that hoards for ourselves at the expense of others and your kingdom. The gluttony that seeks comfort in food and drink rather than you. The fiery wrath that consumes us in our relationships. The spiritual sloth that steals our zeal and love for you. And ultimately, the pride that turns away from you to seek our own way. Our souls cry out to you, Lord, have mercy. But in Christ and because of Christ, our laments are not expressed in vain. For we have one who has gone before us, the one who has conquered sin, death, and brokenness, the one who will ultimately set things right. And so until then, we continually lament the brokenness of creation. Until then, we continually confess our own sin and brokenness. Until then, we continually hope in the good news of Jesus Christ for us and our world. Until then, we trust in your plan to restore creation and us. Until then, we rest in your unfailing, relentless love for us. And because of this, even as our hearts break, we sing your praises. Our hearts, our souls sing your praises as a reminder of what's most true and good and beautiful. Amen. I invite you to stand once more and let's sing together number 376, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Let's stand and sing.
We can just do peace of Christ for a long time this morning. We got lots of time this morning. We're crushing this uh, service so far. I know some of you are appreciating that. But I promised to fill some extra time this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what do you do with the absence of power? Uh, what, the absence of light? We, you know, we roll up our sleeves and we get her done. This morning, I got to give a little shout out to some folks who made this happen. We uh, had to run to the south side of town to borrow a generator from somebody so that we could have a makeshift sound system put together by uh, Steve and some John and the tech crew, and then we handwritten some rope, hand, uh, you know, wrote, I guess would be the correct uh, tense of that verb, uh, some bulletins, if you got those, uh, on yellow legal paper. I was reminded this morning, you know, that we're worshiping like the majority of Christians have for uh, the last 2,000 years. They haven't had power uh, until the last couple hundred years, and some, as Chuck knows, uh, well, uh, across the globe, uh, still worship without power. So we can do this. But I must admit, I was a little frantic, so much so that, you know, I uh, was getting to church in a hurry, and I realized that I uh, forgot my belt. So it's a good thing it's dark, uh, and we don't have to worry about anything happening there. It also might be a little secret uh, way for us to get you to sit closer and thinking that we don't have sound, so that everybody wants to sit a little closer. Or, you know, even the patches are sitting on the wrong side of the sanctuary, you know? It's just, everything's a little off this morning. But what I wanted to wrestle with you about is a question uh, that maybe we don't always ask in church, which is not what do we do with the absence of light, but what do we do and how do we respond to the absence of God in our midst? Can we ask that question this morning? Can we ask that question in this place? I know that when we come to church, sometimes we think that we have to come and kind of have it together. That this is the place where, you know, you got to get spiffy or slap on a happy face, throw some smiles around, you know, engage and talk about the fun things in life. And even if you can't play that game, you, you come with a little uh, feeling that maybe you have to have a, a something right in your own faith to come here. Or that you need to have a certitude in your beliefs or, or know where the books in the Bible are. I must confess, I personally have experienced uh, some of these and wrestled with some of these thoughts even as I come to church, maybe even this morning. But this morning we encounter a question in our summer series, A Questionable Life, 
that's recorded in the Psalms that doesn't allow us to have an altogether put together faith, so to speak. The Psalms do that, don't they? They regularly afford us an opportunity to be completely honest before God. They're bold in expressing the full range of emotions, not just the happy ones. There's no reason to hide, no facade necessary in the Psalms, just our full selves. In all of our doubts, in all of our pains, in all of our frustrations with this world, and even with God. The Psalms, what I appreciate about the Psalms is that they give words to some of these feelings that I might not dare to admit at times. Yes, some of the Psalms are majestic and full of praise, like we opened our service with this morning, and others are filled with uh, beautiful expressions of gratitude to God. But many, and some would say even half of the Psalms, or almost half of the Psalms, are actually Psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are expressions, prayers, you might say, of frustration, or anger, doubt, or disbelief, protest. Or even exasperation. Lament, I believe, is the psalm's response to the disturbing brokenness of this world. To lament is authentic. It's natural. It's honest about our experience of God and God's presence or lack thereof. Psalm 13, which we will read in just a moment, is a psalm of lament. Before we do that, let's pray. God, we ask that you uh, might be with us this morning as we engage in a a hard question in many ways, one that we might not dare to bring up uh, in this place or with other folks, but we pray that you might reveal to us the path of courage uh, to be honest before you and maybe even honest with one another about some of the questions that we have in our hearts. May Psalm 13 be that for us by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 13 is on page 429, if you want to go old school, like we have with the hymnals, and follow along in the Bible in your, uh, in your chairs. Listen to the word of the Lord from the book that we love. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. How long, David asked, how long will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long, oh God, how long? David holds nothing back in his questions of God. He's bewildered by his lack of presence. Confused by God's seeming ignorance of what he's going through, perplexed by God's inactivity in light of the plight that he is experiencing. And David asked, how long? How long must it be like this? 
I know it's summertime in West Michigan, and it would be a lot more fun to think about our vacations and our beach or pool times or some times with our family. It's tempting to save this how long question for a time that's more fitting, you know, like the entire month of February. Or a time when our shared experience is that of real tragedy, not just the tragedy of a first world problem of less power and less important. Why now? Why engage with a question that is hard to think about? One thing I noticed when thinking about this Psalm of David that's unique to many parts of Scripture is that Psalm 13 is the lament of an individual. Its petitions are in the first person singular, not plural. How long will you forget me? Hide your face from me, my heart, my enemies. Psalm 13 is the psalm of a hurting individual. It's the ache of a man's heart, a person's heart. And this morning, I think, we are invited with David to recognize that we all have laments, don't we? We all have doubts and angers and frustrations with God. I know this to be true for many of you because we've talked before. I know that some of you are asking, how long must I endure this parental challenge day in and day out? How long must my loved one struggle with mental illness? How long will my grief linger and sadness keep surprising me? How long will this treatment plan cause such painful side effects? How long is COVID going to continue to disrupt my family? How long is my relationship going to be like this? How long am I going to be alone? How long do I have to be the different one, the oddball, the one that doesn't fit in at school? How long must I wait for these test results? How long until I get that promotion? How long will doubts fill my mind? We've all asked how long, haven't we? No human being is able to escape the pain of this world. No human being is able to, is immune to the consequences of sin and brokenness. No human being, if honest, can avoid doubt in God, or maybe even doubt in oneself. They are, these are, the human experience, and they cause us to wonder, where are you, God? If you're God all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything, why is this happening to me? Have you left me? How long must I endure? The psalmist's lament is not some abstract, foreign question. It's an honest question that our human hearts wrestle with. It's not if, but when we are asking how long. And I think the question for us this morning, then, in light of this big question of how long, is how do we respond when we're in a space of asking God how long? How do we respond when we're faced with doubt, when we're faced with pain or frustration? How do we faithfully ask this question and not give in or give up to take the easy path of folding or similarly take the path of blaming? Or maybe we'll have the path, take the courageous path, the more difficult path. I'd like to consider three different paths, three different responses, you might say, to God's seeming absence in our life. The path of fleeing, the path of folly, and the path of faithfulness. 
First, we can take the easy, maybe the wide path, you might say, of fleeing. In light of my frustration with God, in light of the pain I have endured, in light of my anger with what God has seemingly not done, I'm going to flee. I'm going to deny that God even exists. Clearly, he doesn't care about me, because if he did, this wouldn't happen. And so we flee our pain, we flee our doubts, we flee our anger by replacing God's authority in our lives with our own, and so that we can become the masters of our own domain. It's what Jonah did, right? When God asked Jonah to go and preach to those people the good news of God's love for the enemy, heck no, I doubt that God could ever ask me to do that, and I am kind of frustrated, actually, that he would call me to go there. So I'm going to flee. I'm going to go the way of Tarshish instead of Nineveh. It's what the prodigal son did in the story, too, isn't it? He took his inheritance and abandons the way of the family, and he chose his own path. Instead of the pain of staying in relationship with those people and his family or facing the frustration of being the second fiddle to his older brother, in anger, he fled. To flee is to take the wide and easy path. It's our natural response, not just for the biblical characters, but for us when we're faced with frustration or anger or loss. And it's tempting, and rightfully so. It's self-protection, really, isn't it? Why put your trust in something you can't see, in a God that you can't hear from directly, maybe? Uh, make your own way. Take your own path. Rely on what you can control. Yourself. Why depend on an invisible God? I'll do what I think I is best. And so... We take the vacation to escape the pain. We skip the family holiday to avoid the frustration of the relational dynamics present there. We pour another drink to numb the loss. We mock someone else to cure our loneliness. We get cynical of God to justify our own self-righteousness. To flee is our first innate response. I've been aided in many ways uh, in this sermon by a great book by Philip Yancey entitled Reaching for the Invisible God. What can we expect to find when we search? In it, he refers to a novel that he read that gave two, the only two reasonable um, uh, responses to the audacity of belief in an invisible God. This other writer that he re refers to says that the only two responses are that of the truthful traitor or the loyal liar. I think to flee is the path of the truthful traitor. I'm going to be honest with myself. If God is real and lets this happen, I'm trading my allegiances from God to myself. It's the path of fleeing. The second possible response to God's absence in our life is to take the path of folly. Rather than being the truthful traitor and elevating God's, oneself to the place of God and choosing to be the master of your own domain and charting your own path, the way of folly is actually the opposite, the way of the loyal liar who diminishes their self and wrongly believes that God's absence, God's invisibleness, is a result of my actions. Which is to say, God's not present because of who I am. I am the cause of God's absence. The pain and the frustration, the hurt that I'm experiencing is a result of somehow my unfaithful acts. 
It's the thinking of the disciples, isn't it? When they brought a man who had been born blind to Jesus' feet and asked, Who sinned, this man or his parents? It's the misconstrued notion that my pain, my loss, even my doubts are the result of some disobedient act that I did decades ago. It's the path of the fourth grader who, on a family vacation, witnessed her parents get into a disagreement about bedtime after she had made the request to stay up a little late. She was grateful that her dad won the argument and got to go to bed a little later than she wanted to or than she was supposed to. But today, years later, she's still rehearsing this story in her brain because uh, her parents got got divorced. And she wonders if that instance, that fight that that she witnessed in light of her wanting to go to bed late is the result is the cause of their divorce. It's the path of the gymnast who, for 10 years, has kept silent after her doctor touched her in a place that was uncomfortable to her. But she, at the time, trusted her parents and coach, and she doesn't want to get the doctor in trouble, and so she blames herself instead, thinking that if I was just more clear with my boundaries, if I just would have told them that this was uncomfortable, then this wouldn't have happened to me. It's the path of the senior Christian who, after decades of faithfulness and going to church, is afresh wrestling with doubt in a real way after they lost their spouse to cancer. But they don't dare to admit to their friends or to God how a loving God could do this to them. They fear that it is their lack of prayer, their lack of trust that is causing their doubt, and so they keep silent. The path of folly is available to all of us. When we blame ourselves, when we think that if we just would have prayed harder, if we would have just read our Bible more, then this wouldn't have happened, then the power wouldn't have gone out this morning. And so, we ignore our pain, and we don't share with anyone, not even God. We escape our doubts and try to pretend like they don't exist. We mask our frustrations and believe that we have somehow can handle them on our own, and instead they leak all over the place. It's the way of the loyal liar, who's outwardly committed, but internally wrestling with who I am and who is God, alone, unwilling to present that to those they love, and more importantly, unwilling to even express them to God. So far, I've given you two dim-lit, you might say, paths. The paths of uh, the path of to flee and the path to folly. The path of the truthful traitor who believes that God's the problem and the path of the loyal liar who believes that I am the problem. But I think that Psalm 13 clearly gives us a clear path, the path of faithfulness that's different. You know, I talked about this book by Philip Yancey, and he borrowed the terms truthful traitor and loyal liar as a way to create a new term, a new term that I think is connected to the path of faithfulness, and that is that of a loyal traitor. A loyal traitor is one who, in his own words, questions, squirms, and rebels, yet still tries to remain loyal. It seems 
he says, God appears far less threatened by our doubts, by our anger, frustration, and even sadness than does his church. End quote. David exemplifies the way of a loyal traitor. He gets honest about his lament. He expresses his anger, his sadness. He questions and rebels, God, how long must I go through this? He doesn't sugarcoat his feelings. He doesn't flee from God or God's people. He doesn't remain silent in self-deprecation. He laments to the only one who has the power to change him, the only one who has the power to possibly heal or redeem the situation. This is the path of lament. We don't have to wait silently. We don't run away. We, don't, we cry out. We scream. We get mad. We express ourselves to the one who loves us just like Jesus did. Pastor Ross and I were talking a little bit about premarital counseling some time ago, and he was sharing with me some of the things, or us, the people that were gathered, some of the warning signs that, he's, that he sometimes shares with couples as they embark on premarital counseling. And one of the warning signs of a, a, a relationship that might be on the rocks is the word resentment. Resentment believes that someone else can't change, that someone else won't change, that someone else isn't even worth, the other person isn't even worth talking to about changing. I believe it's the opposite of hashing it out. It's the opposite of lament, resentment is. And he said that he shares this not just as a warning sign for when you get there, you should uh, pay attention because something's wrong if you're experiencing resentment in your marriage. But he shares it more as a permission slip to couples. A permission slip to learn how to share your feelings, even when they're not the good ones. A permission slip to express your frustrations, even if you do it in a broken way. A permission slip to engage in the painful and hard discussions that you need to. The path to growth together as a couple is to fight it out if necessary. It's not to flee or to blame oneself silently. The path to wholeness does not avoid the pain. It faces it head on. <laughs> The path of Jesus, who in the garden the day before he was to be crucified, sat on the Mount of Olives and prayed, God, take this cup from me. May there be another path. Why do I have to endure what I'm going to tomorrow? And again, on the cross, he laments the words of Psalm 22, another psalm of Lent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why are you invisible to me? God, where are you? Must there be another way? My friends, if Jesus, the Son of God, can offer a lament to God, if God himself can cry out in anguish, I think we can too. Here's the crazy thing, though, about Psalm 13, is that the result of David's honest, raw, emotional lament is trust. It's love. It's faithfulness. Psalm 13 ends with this statement of faith that I will trust in your unfailing love. I will sing praise to you again. A couple years ago, many years ago now, I guess before we even had kids, so that means it was a long time ago, Becca and I had the opportunity to go spend six weeks in Uganda with a group of high school students that were learning how to do mission together in a rural part of Uganda, both Ugandan students and North American students from the U.S. and India. 
We did this for about five weeks together after some training, and it was a really formative, powerful time. But one of the most um, poignant times of our time together, or experiences of our time together, was a trip we took to Rwanda for the last week we were together. Uganda, like much of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, is a developing nation, and Rwanda would probably fit into that category as well. But there was a stark difference as we drove across the border. Yes, the mountains were beautiful, but the coffee plantations in Rwanda were seemingly more well-kept even. Uh, the roads were free from litter and even had curbs in some spots and sidewalks. The capital city of Kigali had high-rises and malls, pizza huts, and churches' chickens even. All of this amazement and awe stood in sharp contrast to the experience of going to some of the memorial sites from the Rwandan genocide some decades ago. You remember the Rwanda genocide of 1994, maybe. It was a 100-day civil war between two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. It wasn't really a civil war as much as a genocidal attempt by the Hutus to eliminate all Tutsis and even moderate Hutus uh, from the country of Rwanda. It was ugly. Two unique tribes, yes, but they lived together. They went to church together. They even got married to one another. And yet, then this extremist version of Hutus decided that it was time to remove all Tutsis. And so they say one in seven Rwandans was murdered in that genocide. No one was able to escape from the pain of that time. That was hundred day, that hundred day war, and so we went to some of these sites, churches, literally building church buildings, I should say, that now served as a memorial site filled with the skeletal remains of those who had been murdered in that building, with clothes in the outside packed in a shed of children who had been murdered on those on those grounds. It was sobering, one of the most poignant experiences I've had in my life. And afterwards, we sat with one of the pastors in a circle outside of one of these churches uh, and asked, why do you leave all this stuff out? Why, why don't you clean up the building? Why don't you use it for worship again? And he says, we don't want to forget. We don't want to forget what's happened here because it is only in facing our pain, then we are healed. It is only in facing our frustration or anger and expressing those to one another that we can be redeemed as a country. And so, for years after the genocide, they would gather Hutus and Tutsis around in a circle and express all of the things that had happened to them as individuals, express their losses, express their frustrations, express the pain of their sorrow. Because only in facing their pain could they be healed. This is the path of faithfulness, my friends. Amidst our doubts, amidst our pain and frustration, we can honestly lament to God. And frankly, we can lament to one another. We can be the kind of place, the kind of community that expresses our frustrations, even about God, here in this place, with these people. This is the path of faithfulness. And I believe that when we face our pain, when we are willing to engage in our anger and our frustration, then we open up a path, a way for us to be healed, a way for us to be redeemed. So as you face the absence of God in your life, as you ask the question, how long, what path will you take? Will you take the path 
but see the path to folly and the path of faithfulness that David exemplified in Psalm 13. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, as we respond to how God might be speaking to our hearts this morning, we end where we began, which is with God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love, even in the face of and, and rooted um, even in our lament. Would you stand and let's sing together. Number 276, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
is because of God's faithfulness that we can cry out, How long, O oh God? Where are you? And as you go this week and ponder uh, where God is at work in your life or not, and you lament honestly, I encourage you or invite you maybe uh, to keep Ross Ross in your prayers because he got stuck with COVID. So that's where he is this morning. Uh, but we're praying for him as well as he's asking, How long, O oh Lord? For sure. As you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go in peace.